verses 23 to 27. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that this, from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. May this word of the Lord unite us as a church and make us bold as missionaries. Thanks. Thanks. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see y'all. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, the verses that come just after what we just read there uh, describe the the kind of almost riot type situation that breaks out in Ephesus as a result of um, of Paul encouraging people not to follow idolatry. And it actually says a couple verses later that a bunch of people rushed into the theater there at Ephesus. And uh, one of the highlights of my life so far, in a moment that I really hope I will never ever forget, uh, was a couple years ago I had the chance to go to Turkey and to visit Ephesus and to actually have a chance to read out loud with the group that I was with, Acts chapter 19, in the theater at Ephesus. So I am having the opportunity, this is what every tour group does, right? You all go and someone picks, you know, oh, you get, you get to read it. But, but having the chance to, to read this story that we're going to be looking at here this morning in the place where it happened, right? Like sometimes I think we kind of read Bible stuff and we go, oh, you know, in a you know, galaxy far, far away, a land, you know, that kind of thing. But like this really happened and this really happened here. And uh, you see actually some other, some other pictures that I took while I was there. This is an enormous theater in Ephesus. As many as 24,000 people, they estimated, uh, could fit in there. And obviously the center of a lot of civic operations and just things that would happen. You see it there kind of in the background. It's a huge, enormous, spectacular place. And that's the setting for everything that we're going to look at here today. Now we're going to look at Acts 19, starting in verse 11, and go through the end of the chapter. And this passage, I think, is actually, it has two things that every story should have. It's both funny and insightful. Right? There's some stuff in here that I think is just frankly humorous. I have to think that as Luke was writing it, he was kind of laughing to himself. But there's also some things that are pretty insightful that we're going to look at. So this morning, we're going to see something to beware of. We're going to see something to notice and something to prepare for. Something to beware of, something to notice, something to prepare for. That's what we're going to do this morning. I want to just kind of work through the passage, make sure we understand it, and then come back and look at those three things. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. I thank you for how it challenges us and confronts us, how it encourages us and sharpens us. I thank you, Lord, for how by your spirit you use your word to take over our hearts, to make us new, and to form us into the image of Jesus. And Lord, I invite you now to do that, to do that in me, to do that in us that we would experience your power and your presence through your word. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. 
Well, as I said, the the story that we're going to begin looking at begins in verse 11, and the verses just before that that we looked at last week talked about uh, Paul doing his ministry in this town of Ephesus, and he had been for a couple months teaching in the synagogue. After a few months, they were like, hey, we don't want you here anymore, so he started renting out this hall of Tyrannus, this place where he would spend the afternoons lecturing and answering questions and talking about Jesus with people, Uh, had such a significant significant presence there in this hall of Tyrannus over two years period of time that it actually says in verse 10 that all of the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, obviously, Luke doesn't mean every single person in Asia heard this, but this was a significant impact that Paul had as he taught about Jesus. Now, what we're going to see in this particular passage is that Paul's message about Jesus wasn't just words. The, the, The kingdom of God does not just consist in talk, but in power, Paul writes later. And here's where we begin to see that. Look at verse 11. It says, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs, by the way, that word in Greek literally means sweat rags. So I was like, yes, Paul had a sweat rag, just like I do. That's amazing. <laughs> right? So Paul's, Paul's sweat rag and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. This is amazing, right? Paul is doing these amazing works of healing, so much so that if people just take stuff that he used to wear or he used to touch, actually people are getting healed with that. And, and this is extraordinary is the word Paul, or, or that Luke uses in verse 11. He says this is ex- extraordinary miracles, right? Sometimes we think, gosh, why doesn't this happen today? Uh, why don't we all experience this? Because it's extraordinary, right? This is an extraordinary thing. And, uh, and, and people are blown away by it. This is actually a, a city in Ephesus that's very much wrapped up in magic. They're wrapped up in power demonstrations. They're wrapped up in kind of the spiritual forces, which, which might actually be why when Paul writes a letter to the Ephesians later, three times he talks about how Jesus is Lord over rulers and principalities because they're so caught up in this kind of magic mindset. Well, you read more about that in verse 13. It says, Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, it's like a side gig, I don't know. What, what, what do you do? I'm an itinerant exorcist. Oh, nice to meet you. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Right, so you get this? People are seeing Paul's ministry. They're seeing Paul cast out demons. They're seeing people healed. That these itinerant exorcists start going, I'm going to use the formula Paul uses. I'm just going to say what Paul says. Well, this kind of backfires on uh, these seven particular brothers. It says in verse 14, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. I think they first had a career as a boy band, and then they moved into this. Right, but these seven brothers travel around as this unit, and this is what they're doing. They're saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, right? And they're trying to kind of cast out demons and exercise demons. This is an incredible story, and I think actually pretty funny in verse 15. It's funny and crazy serious at the same time. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Right, and I tried to read that in my best demon voice. That's the, right, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, who are you? 
right? Listen, the, the demons know who Jesus is. There's actually a place later on in the New Testament in the book of James where James says, oh, you believe in God? So do the demons, right? People go, oh, I believe in God. Well, congratulations. You are now qualified to be a demon. <laughs> the question is not whether you believe in God, whether you know about Jesus, but do you have a relationship with him? And the, the, the Spirit says, Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize. Who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. That's funny. Right? That's really funny. And and obviously something like that, I mean, if, if, right, if they didn't have YouTube in those days, but if they did, like this would totally go viral, and it goes viral anyway. Look at verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus. Yeah, <laughs> like, right? Wouldn't you be like, oh my gosh, did you hear about those seven guys that got mauled by the dude? Like, that's just an incredible story. This became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now look at the serious result of this. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. The word extolled means magnified, made large, made big. The name of Jesus was extolled, it was magnified, it was exalted as the fear of the Lord fell on people. Now we can have a laugh about this, we can say this really is legitimately funny, but this is also deadly serious. Because with the people there who know about spiritual power, they know about the powers and the principalities of darkness, they know about these things, and yet they see the power that exists in Paul and in Jesus, and they go, this is different. This is not a laughing matter. We cannot play around with this. And great fear fell upon them. This began to bear some fruit in the new Christians there. Verse 18. And many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. All right, I'm giving up my incantations. I'm giving up my stuff. Here's how I did it. Here's what I do. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. Notice, this wasn't that their books were being rounded up by people saying, you have to do this. This was voluntary. They're saying, I don't want this anymore. I don't want this life anymore. I don't want to go this direction anymore. You can get rid of this. You can have my my formulas. You can have my books. You can have this stuff. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Significant. It's costly. That's a lot. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And the next few verses kind of talk about Paul and his travel plans and his desire to go different places. Uh, but then through the rest of the chapter, we, we hear about the impact of what happened because of all these Christians who were afraid, uh, rightly, holy, righteous fear of God, and a desire to exalt and lift up Jesus because they gave up those practices. We then see the fruit that that had, the outcome that it had on the culture. And this is what we read about a moment ago. Look at verse 23. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. So this guy Demetrius is going, uh, listen, I, I make my living off of silver dedicated to this goddess Artemis. This is, this is going to be 
a problem. And, and, and so I take this silver and I craft it into these images and people, I want them to buy it because I want them to be able to worship Artemis and business is drying up. So he actually gets together the, all the other craftspeople, kind of a, like a union meeting. He gets them all together, all the people in this trade and says, hey, we have a problem. He says, verse 25, men, you know that from this business, we have our wealth. Everything we own comes from this. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned a great many people, saying that gods made with, the hand, with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Now, in order to really appreciate this passage, you have to know a little bit of the background on, on Artemis. Artemis was thought, thought of as the goddess of fertility, the goddess of hunting. She was a daughter of Zeus, and Artemis was worshipped at least 33 different places in the ancient world, have temples devoted to Artemis. Um, and, and so she was a very kind of commonly known, the, the Romans called her Diana, same, same goddess that they worshipped and feared. In fact, in the spring, there was a week-long festival to Artemis, and everything kind of went on hold, especially in Ephesus, and they celebrated and, and worshipped her. Um, now, the temple of Artemis in Ephesus is of a special significance, right? I, I said there were these 33 shrines to Artemis. The largest was in Ephesus. And in fact, not only was this the largest uh, shrine to Artemis in the ancient world, it was the largest building in the Greek world. It was four times the size of the Parthenon. It's listed, actually, as one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. That was put together by a guy named Anapater of Sidon. He went to all these different places. He was like TripAdvisor, right? And he, he went to all these, and he actually said that the temple to Artemis in Ephesus was number one. Number one on the ancient world TripAdvisor, Temple of Artemis. It was huge. It was staggering. Some of the people that have, you know, studied it have, have said that it was 425 feet long, 225 feet wide, with 60 foot high pillars, much bigger than a football field. Here's an artist's rendering of what it might have looked like. Spectacular. It incredible. And, and so this guy Demetrius is saying, listen, a bunch of people are walking away from Artemis. A bunch of people are walking away from these shrines that we're selling them, and this is a problem. We, we have an issue here. Uh, something is, you know, th this, this is, this is a big deal. And he says, not only are we going to lose our wealth, that's kind of the economic threat that he's facing, but he's also saying, you know, there's kind of this religious threat, and really our whole way of life, the whole Ephesian culture, right? Just think about this. If that building was in your town, that would be the, like, pride of the town, right? The biggest, best, most spectacular building in the Greek world is in my town, right? So, so what's threatened here is economic realities, religious realities, and cultural realities. You actually see that kind of all mixed up in verse 28. It says, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, right? You see the cultural pride there. Of the Ephesians. This is the, this is the goddess of Ephesus. 
So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. They can't find Paul, apparently. They get a couple of his guys together, and they rush into the, the theater, that place that I showed you the picture. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. I really wish Luke had elaborated on that, just because I feel like, who's going to tell Paul, no, you can't go in there, <laughs> right? But, but they do. They gather around. They say, hey, man, this is not safe. This is not a good idea. You should not go in there. And somehow Paul is talked down from it. But the scene is chaotic. It's crazy. And I love verse 32. I think, I think verse 32 is pretty funny. It says, now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. <laughs> right? Doesn't that sound like social media? <laughs> I was like, that's Twitter's life verse. Right? Some cried out one thing, some another. Most of them didn't know why they were there. <laughs> right? like, like that's what's going on. It's just chaos. And so the crowd prompts this guy Alexander to speak. But the crowd doesn't want him because Alexander is a Jew. And so for a couple hours, they just start chanting out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I mean, the scene is just chaotic. More and more people are pouring into the theater. More and more chaos is happening. More and more stuff is going on until verse 35, some sanity shows up in the form of the town clerk. Uh, it says in verse 35, and when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, I, I first read town clerk and I'm like, just picturing some nerdy town clerk. What's he going to do? But, but the reality is, as I studied it, is the town clerk was like the top civil official in the city. He was like the city manager. He was the one that really kind of oversaw the funds of the temple, right? So if the temple is threatened, he would know about it, and he would have an issue with it. And he basically gets up and says, listen, guys, you're all overreacting. Count to 10. Take a deep breath. He goes, listen, everybody knows about Artemis. Everybody knows about how a stone fell from the sky. He kind of retells the Artemis story. He goes, hey, we're not in danger of losing Artemis here. Artemis is going to be fine. Paul hasn't stirred up all the stuff that, that you're saying. He, he, he actually says this in verse 40. He says, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there's no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. He says, listen, you're all freaking out. You don't need to freak out like this. Calm down. Now, not only is this an interesting story, but I think perhaps the reason that Luke includes this is because at the time that Luke was writing, many Christians throughout the Greek and Roman world were being accused of starting riots, right? The gospel was just turning the world upside down, and the thought was, well, Christians are directly responsible for it. Christians are the one overthrowing things. Christians are the ones starting violence and riots. And I think maybe Luke includes this to say, no, 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 no. Christians are not the direct cause of the chaos that's happening. Christians fear God and love Jesus and live accordingly, and then the world freaks out as they experience that kind of faithfulness. So that seems to be what's going on and, and perhaps why he includes this. But as I said, well, there's a few things that we need to see here. We need to see something to beware, something to notice, and something to prepare for. First, something to beware. Beware. It's tempting to use God for his power without knowing him. Isn't that what the sons of Sceva were doing? They were using God for his power without knowing him. Jesus I know. Paul I recognize. Who are you? 
right? They don't actually want to follow Jesus. They don't want to actually repent of sin. They don't want to leave their magic behind, but they want to use the power of Jesus, the power of God, in order to prop up their reputation, in order to make more money, surely, in order to be more influential. It's tempting to use God for his power without knowing him. I can't help but wonder if we do the same thing. We want God's power for health. We get sick, we get a diagnosis, something happens with our kids, they're unhealthy, they're sick, and we all of a sudden, our prayer life really heats up. Oh God, oh God, rescue me here. Oh God, you're the great physician. Oh God, would you heal? But if that's the only time we really pray, doesn't that mean that we're just using God for his power? We don't really want to know him? Or we get in a financial bind, we lose a job, or, or some sort of investment goes south, or the, the environment, you know, economically gets shaky, and, and our prayer life heats up. Oh, God, you got to help. Oh, God, you got to provide. And we're starting to quote Matthew 6, God, I know that you provide for the birds of the field and the lilies of the forest. I'm not going to worry, God, would you, you know, would you provide for me? Oh, Lord, but seek first the kingdom and its righteousness, and all of this will be added to you. Are you seeking first his kingdom? Or are you just using his power to get what you really want, which is provision? We use God for our career. God, would you give me this job? Would you give me this role? Would you help me do this? Would you help me advance? You know, there's been over the years a lot of like drama about prayer in schools. One funny thing I heard was that, you know, as long as there's tests in schools, there will be prayer in schools. Right? This is, oh God, if you help me ace this test, if you help me do this, if you help me pass, I'll do anything you want, God. Right? It's using God for his power without really knowing him. We do this with our families. Oh Lord, I'm 28 and I'm still single and I don't know anybody. And God, would you just provide somebody? You know, God would like to hear from you other times. God, I, I, we really want kids. We really want to get pregnant. We really want to adopt. Oh, God, would you, would you allow, would you use your power? Listen, I face this temptation every week when I get up to preach. It, there's a lot of things in the world harder than preaching. But one of the interesting things about preaching is it's like having an oral exam every week and people are bringing friends to watch. Right? There's a pressure to that, right? And I feel the temptation on Saturday night and Sunday morning. Oh, I got to really pray. Oh, God, would you use me? Would you speak through me? Would you give me power and would you give me ability? Would you bless your people through me? Listen, if I'm honest, I've had weeks where that's kind of the extent of my prayers. And here's the thing. God often still answers and still does give me power. You know why? Because he loves you. But, but there's definitely moments where I sort of hear the Spirit whispering, yeah, Luke, I'll give you power. Will I hear from you again tomorrow? I'd like to 
I'd like to hear from you again on Tuesday too. Listen, it's very tempting to try to use God for his power without really wanting relationship with him, without really wanting closeness with him, without really wanting friendship with him. What we do when we do this is we're like a person that married God for his money. You ever know someone that married someone for their money? It's really not a good look. But that's what we do with God. Oh God, if you just, I will. If you provide this, I'll do anything. We marry God for his money. That, that's, when you say it out loud, I married God for his money, that doesn't sound good. Beware. It's tempting to use God for his power rather than really knowing him. Here's the thing we should notice in this passage. If we continue, notice this. Change in Ephesus came not from trying to change Ephesus, but from costly obedience. There's a profound change in Ephesus, right? As we went through that story, I mean, it's just undeniable. Even this, you know, Demetrius, silversmith worker is going, there's a change here, guys. We got to get the industry together. We have problems. Our sales are down. Our income is down. Our cultural status is maybe on the way down. Like, this is an issue. Something's changed here. Now, what strikes me is that that change in Ephesus didn't come from trying to change Ephesus. There's no indication at all that there was some sort of organized movement down with Artemis of the Ephesians, right? And everyone's signing an online petition, right? And, and everybody, you know, th- there's no indication of that at all. Now, here's the thing. There are, thankfully, through the history of the church, there have been people who have organized to try to cause change, right? Thank God for Martin Luther King. Thank God for so many other civil rights leaders who organized efforts in the name of Jesus to, to fight injustice and to pursue what's good and right. Thank God for that, right? So, so this isn't to say that that's wrong to do, but, but I think what happens a lot of times as Christians is that's the first place we go. Oh, I feel some conviction about this. I got to change everyone else. But what you see in this passage is that change in Ephesus didn't come from trying to change Ephesus. It came from costly obedience first. Right? Isn't that what you see after the whole Sons of Sceva incident? Verse 17, all this became known and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. These people were going... God, this is no laughing matter. I'm going to stand before you. I'm going to give an account to you for every word, for every deed, for sure, for how I spend my vocational life. I'm going to give an account to you, God. And I want to honor you, Lord, and I want to bring glory to you. You have died for me. You've resurrected for me. You've ascended and poured out your spirit on me. And Lord, I don't want to do this to try to earn your favor. I already have it, but because I have your favor, I want to please you. I want to honor you. I want to live a life devoted to you. That's where the change began. It rippled out for sure, but that's where it happened. You know, when I was writing this, I I, I first wrote, change in Ephesus came not from trying to change Ephesus, but from simple obedience. It was just simple obedience. But but you know what, As as I reflected on that more, that's not right. It was costly obedience. Look at what it says in verse 18. 
Also, many of those who are now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. That's costly. You know why? Because the whole belief in the ancient world about these kind of miracle-type workers was that once you divulged the power source, once you kind of explained how you did it, once you explained the incantation, it lost its power. I was hearing a guy who, whose dad was a magician, and uh, they were saying, so your dad was a magician, are you really good at you know, magic? And he said, no, but I, I don't know how to do magic, but I know how to ruin it for you. <laughs> And, and that's the whole idea. That, like, and we're not talking about, you know, pull a rabbit out of a hat. And, oh, there's a quarter behind your ear. This is like real significant demonic spiritual power that's going on here. And these people who have probably had influence and power, probably money, are saying, I'm out. That's costly. Right? We said that somebody went around and counted the value of all the books they brought. See verse 19? A number of those who'd practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. Do you know how valuable books were in the ancient world? You didn't have books. You didn't have a printing press. They were handwritten. These were precious, valuable things. And they say, take it. Because I, it's not worth it to me if it brings dishonor to Jesus. This is costly obedience. Change to Ephesus doesn't come from trying to change Ephesus. It comes from saying, I want the change to start with me. It wasn't down with Artemis of the Ephesians. It was down with any God that I worship in me. That's where it was. And so here's the difficult question to ask. What needs to change in your life because you fear the Lord and want to exalt him? What needs to change? Not a simple thing, not an easy thing, a costly thing. And listen, you probably know what it is. It's a besetting sin. It's something that, like we talked about last week, you know, it's like a weed and you kind of rip the top off and it grows back and you rip the top off and it goes back and you rip the top off and it just keeps coming back. And you know there's this thing that the Spirit and those who love you maybe are kind of pressing in on your life and saying, hey, that needs to change. That needs to be different. You want to honor Jesus. You want to live for Jesus. You're going to give an account to Jesus. Hey, hey, that needs to change, right? And, and you're resisting it, right? Maybe you've even kind of doctored it up with some spiritual language. Like you've said, you know what? This is just my, this is just my cross to bear. Really? This is just, here's what you're saying. This is just the sin that God wants me to keep nurturing in my life to keep me humble. Are you kidding? You, you don't really think that, right? But that's how we, that's how much we convince ourselves. And so what is it in your life that needs to change? That the Spirit is, is going beep, 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 beep. And it's zeroing in on your heart and on your life. And he's saying, trust me there. Go all in there. Don't hold back there. Trust me there. It's going to be hard. It's going to be costly. What is it? It could be all kinds of things. Maybe for some of you it would be 
you know what, you have a, a purchase planned, you have a vacation planned, you have some big thing that's coming up and you've been excited about it, but you're also kind of up to your eyebrows in debt and things are a little bit too tight and, and you keep getting a job promotion then spending a little bit more, another promotion, spending a little bit more and, and things are just a little too snug and when you have opportunities to be generous, you can't really be because you're just living a little bit too much over your means. Maybe what you'd say is, I'm going to give that up. I'm going to pay off my debt. I'm going to be generous. I'm going to pursue freedoms so that I can love other people, not serve myself. Maybe that would be something you'd do. Maybe you're just kind of a person that is gripped by this idol of consumerism. Everywhere you go, it's about what you want and what you feel and what you need and what you'd like and how you would like to have everything. And you, Burger King is your whole world. You have it your way all the time. And maybe what you need is to have a chance to, to just go, you know what, I'm going to be a servant. I'm going to give up my comfort and I'm going to serve. I'm going to serve at my kid's school. I'm going to serve by coaching when they keep badgering me to coach. Some of you, it might be, I'm going to serve at church. I'm going to come to a five o'clock service, and I'm going to greet people and pass out Bibles, or I'm going to hold kids, and you go, well, but I don't want to do that because football's about to start, okay? It's costly. Maybe some of you you always say yes to the thing. You always volunteer. You always give your time away. You always, always, always agree. And maybe you need to actually sacrifice by saying no. Maybe you need to obey God's call to love your family. I don't know. It's different for each of us. Maybe some of you need to get off social media because the more you're on there, the more tense you get, the more anxious you get, the more discontent you get, the more you compare yourself with everybody and everything. And you've had a few runs at it, right? And you told us all, right before you were going off of it for a couple weeks, you told us, hey, I'm about to do this thing. You announced it, and now you're back. And you go off for a while, and you come back. And you're not able to just use it in a way that's healthy and good and informative. It just, it, it takes you into places that are not helping you exalt Jesus. if I could do that. I'd miss out on so much. Would you? Okay, spoiler alert. Trump did something. Everyone's mad. That's what you missed on social media this week, all right? Next week, it'll be the same thing. But that's costly. Maybe you need to cut back on your work hours and on your travel and on all these things that are keeping you away from your kids in the prime of their life at home with you. And you took that job or you took that promotion and you said, well, this will be just a season. And you told your spouse and you told your kids, hey, it'll just be a season. It'll just be for a little bit. But now a season has become a lifestyle. And, and, and maybe out of obedience to the Lord so that you would have margin in your heart and room to be present and available for the people you love, maybe you would take a costly move Say, I can't do that anymore. Listen, I, this is not easy. This is not simple obedience. This is costly. Maybe some of you, you need to get a smartphone. Or I'm sorry, get a dumb phone. You need to get a flip phone. 
So you've had a smartphone for a while. And every time you have it, it's not long before you're looking at things you shouldn't be looking at. You're texting things you shouldn't be texting. You're experiencing and consuming and using pornography. Maybe it's time to cut it off and get a flip phone. You go, oh, that'll be too embarrassing. People are going to say, why do you you have a flip phone? And you don't want to say, because I'm a pervert. (laughs) And you don't have to say that. You go, but I'd have to have a conversation with my spouse. Ah, there it is. Do you fear the Lord? Do you fear your spouse? Both are awfully scary. (laughs) But in the end, you'll give an account to Jesus. Some of you you might need to just get rid of internet in your house altogether because it's just, it's too much. You just can't keep going there. And you go, well, I can't do that. And how would this work? I don't know. I don't know. Don't you think the people in Ephesus who are like, my whole life has been these formulas. My whole life has been this magic arts. What am I going to do? I don't know. But I've got to follow Jesus. Maybe what you need to do is admit you need help. Maybe it's just to come to someone in the church, to a leader, to a pastor, to one of our counselors, to somebody and say, I'm stuck here. I'm overwhelmed here. I don't know what to do. I'm struck by how all these people did this together. This is not just one heroic story of this one person who gave it all up in this power of their own strength. That's not what it is. It's people together in a community saying, I need help. I need encouragement. Let's do this together. Let's go there together. And I want to tell you, we're here for you. We want to help you. We want to encourage you. We want to hold you accountable. We want to pray for you. We want to help. Why? So that the name of Jesus would be extolled and exalted and made much of. Isn't that what we want as followers of Christ? Isn't that what turns the world upside down? Not an organized effort most of the time. Change in Ephesus came from costly obedience. Finally, here's the last thing, the thing to prepare for. Prepare for this. People will fight back when their idolatry is threatened. People will fight back when their idolatry is threatened, right? The threat here is threefold. The threat is economic, right? We get our wealth from this whole industry. The threat is religious. Well, what about our Artemis? We really love her. The threat is cultural, Hey, Artemis is so connected with Ephesus, and, you know, we got to, like, love Ephesus. Listen, when you, when you come against idols, even if you're not, like, on a crusade to come against everyone's idols, if you just say, hey, I'm not going to give in to consumerism anymore. Hey, I'm not going to give in to greed anymore. I'm not going to give in to lust anymore. The people who, who love those things will feel threatened, and they'll fight back. 
This happens in the book of Judges. In Judges chapter 6, Gideon is told to go tear down an altar of Baal that's actually on his father's property. And he gets a bunch of people uh, and and animals in the middle of the night because he knows it's going to freak everyone out. And he tears it down. And sure enough, the next day they're calling for his head. They're calling to kill him. This is not a new thing. Right? This, this is even in the church. It's interesting. The, the threats, right? I told you it was economic, religious, cultural. I don't necessarily as a preacher get a lot of people fighting back about religious idolatry. I think they just assume I'm going to talk about that. But I get people, even Christians, and every pastor does, who when you start pushing on their economic reality, can't talk about that can't preach on money you can't challenge me to give you can't who are you to you just went on a vacation who are you to say i can't go on a vacation i'm not saying anything do what god's leading you to do but that fight in your heart might be a way that the spirit is just sort of pressing on that idolatry Push on economics, we get uncomfortable. Push on cultural stuff, we get uncomfortable. Right? Talk about how black lives matter. You can get all bent out of shape. You just hear that first phrase, and some of you just, you just, you don't even know what to do with it. You don't know what I mean. And am I supportive of the movement, or do I just think that black people are made in the image of God and matter to him? What is it? What is it? You're there already in... 10 seconds, I just got you there. Do you know what that means? There might be some idolatry about that. We fight when our idols are threatened. Listen, when you, if you're a person that just, like, you find yourself getting angry, I get angry, I get angry, what? what? You can't just go, I need to stop getting angry. You have to go, what is, what idols are being threatened that now I'm angry? Because we fight back when our idols are threatened. But listen, in the midst of all this, here's, here's the good news. The good news is that Jesus, who lived a holy, righteous, God-exalting, God-fearing life, who died a substitutionary death in our place on the cross, who rose victoriously over Satan, sin, and death, that Jesus reigns and rules and is with us by his spirit. And that's the good news, which means no matter what idolatry is in our hearts, Jesus eventually will conquer it. Jesus will stamp it out. Jesus will, by his spirit and through his word and by his people, come along into the hearts of Christians and root out that idolatry. And it might take decades and it might take a lifetime, but God is forming us into the image of his son, Jesus. And Jesus reigns and Jesus rules over all these false gods who never fail to fail. You know how I know that? You know one place I didn't go when I went to Ephesus? There was one site I didn't get to see. There was one site that nobody took pictures in. Nobody stood up to read anything. There was a site that had never been excavated. In fact, I didn't even know it was there. 
Like, it wasn't like, oh, what's that? Why can't we go there? We didn't even see it. You know what it was? The temple of Artemis. I didn't see it. It's buried. Seventh wonder of the world. Where? I love verse 27. Demetrius says this in verse 27 to all these craftspeople. There is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of our great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. He says, there's danger of this. No, there's certainty of this. There is certainty of this. Right, I toured the temple, why? Because it's, or I'm, I'm sorry, I toured the theater, why? Because it's talked about in the Bible, which is the book that describes the Lord Jesus who reigns and rules over every false god. So listen, it might be hard, it might be difficult, but we're in it with you and Jesus is with you and for you and strengthening you by his spirit and encouraging you by his presence. This is God's invitation just a moment, we're going to sing a song that says, Father, you are all we need. And this is God's invitation. It's to say, Father, you're all I need. Even if it hurts, even if it's costly, even if I can't even imagine how I would take that step of obedience that I think maybe you're calling me to take. I don't know how to do it. I don't know what to do. And I'm scared and I don't want to. And everything in me is resisting it and fighting it. But Father, you're all I need. This is that invitation from the Lord to trust him, to surrender to him, to find your life in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word and your spirit and your presence. Thank you that even when I come to you as a user who wants to use you for your power, God, that you remind me you love me, you died and rose to forgive me, that you poured out your spirit to fill and form me into the image of your son. God, thank you that you do that for all of us, all of us idolaters. Would you do that again in a powerful way, we ask. In Christ's name.